Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. My co-host Jacob Solis is off this week, so I'll be writing solo for the hosting. But worry not, you'll get to hear Jacob in the first segment, which is his interview with the Nevada System of Higher Education Chancellor Melody Rose. Jacob and CEO John Ralston chatted with her during one of our live Indie Talks events in Las Vegas earlier this month. The discussion was full of good information and insights. Later in the show, I'm joined by assistant editor Riley Snyder, who talks about a new requirement for state employees to either pay a monthly fee or get vaccinated. As chancellor of the Nevada System of Higher Education, Melody Rose's job is to manage the presidents of Nevada's universities and community colleges, as well as to be the liaison between the Board of Regents and the government. She's kind of like a superintendent for the entire state higher education system. Rose came to Nevada in 2020. Before that, she was in Oregon, serving as chancellor for the higher education system there. Before we get to her discussion with Jacob and John, I want to talk briefly about her recent hostile work environment complaint against the Board of Regents. Because of the ongoing investigation, she wasn't able to talk about it during the interview, but in early October, she accused Regent Chair Kathy McAdoo and Vice Chair Patrick Carter of a pattern of hostility and undermining behavior. Jacob Solis is following the story closely, and there will be more reporting on the complaint as we learn more. Without further ado, here's an edited version of our live conversation with Rose. If you want to hear the full discussion, you can find the video on our YouTube channel. Just search for The Nevada Independent on YouTube. You cut your teeth in Oregon. You spent decades there, first as faculty, then as administrator, then as you know, chancellor of the Oregon system. So you're coming to Nevada. I'm just curious, how do you think that that out-of-state experience has shaped the way that you've approached the job when you got to Nevada? The, the challenge here, if I could boil it down, is to create a college-going culture. So we can talk about budget woes, we can talk about changes in the business model, we can talk about all of those things, but truly the number one thing that attracted me to this opportunity is the fact that we have a very low capture rate of high school seniors, which is to say we're typically ranked 46, 47, 48 out of 50 states for the percentage of high school graduates who matriculate directly into higher education. And to me, that's an important problem to solve because it is cultural. Well, I'm glad you brought up the college-going culture because I did want to bring up the fact that Nevada is 47th in the country when it comes to the percentage of its population with a college degree. Nevada's economy is Nevada's economy. Uh, And so much of it revolves around gaming and the way that the jobs come from that economy. So absent some kind of seismic shift in the way that Southern Nevada operates on an economic level, I mean, how do you change that college-going culture in a way that materially changes the number of high school students that are going to Nevada colleges? Well, a couple of things. I mean, we need that seismic shift. Let's, let's be honest, right? We've been through two of the worst economic downturns in American history in the past decade. So if that is not an opportunity for seismic change, I fear what is. And so I, I certainly sense the conversation here, especially in Southern Nevada, where we did not necessarily make the kinds of changes that were necessary after the Great Recession, the conversation here is, is shifting. We, you know, we hear an awful lot about the demands for workforce, short-term credentials, low credit-bearing opportunities so that we can redeploy workforce that may never fully be picked back up by the hospitality sector. And to me, I see that as opportunity. And it has to come through partnership. There's a cultural feature to all of this, too. 
In Oregon, we talk about it as cradle to career. So to really understand that education builds on itself from a child's formative years all the way through postgraduate education, that mindset also happens to be shared by our state superintendent, Joan Ebert. We both have that vision of education being a continuous cycle where there are no breaks or breaches in the pipeline. And in order to create that, you have to work in partnership and you have to be willing as chancellor to go into classrooms of second graders and fifth graders and begin to talk to them about what it means to go to college. So to be able to tell kids who are eight years old in a second grade classroom, we're ready for you in 10 years, and to try and anticipate their needs 10 years out is a pretty exciting proposition. You mentioned this 10-year timeline that you you want to create this college-going culture, you want to bring Nevadans into Nevada colleges and universities. But when we talk about enrollment in, in national universities, certainly, there's this thing, an idea, the enrollment cliff, right? That there's demographic changes that stem from the Great Recession that are going to hit colleges in the next 10 to 15 years that are going to decimate enrollment. Now, Nevada is in the West, which is expected to fare better than places like the Midwest or the South. But there are still the sort of demographic implications of something like a recession, of something like the coronavirus. How can you plan 10 years down the road? How can you have this expectation that more Nevadans are going to go to college, that more Nevadans are going to enroll in Nevada schools. I mean, how do you sell to, the, to, to a smaller and smaller population and actually grow the colleges when that population is getting smaller all the time? So first of all, the demographic decline has already begun. We have fewer college students going to our campuses nationally every year for the last decade. So that aggregate decline is already well underway, and it's expected to accelerate in 2026. Why? Because that's when the folks who were born during the Great Recession would be expected to show up on our campuses. Birth rate went down in 2008. The whole nation expected it would pop back up. It never did. And in fact, with this most recent economic downturn, the decline in the birth rate accelerated. So that's the aggregate. There is a reason I didn't apply to jobs in the Midwest and the Upper Northeast, because that is where the pain of this birth decline is accelerating the most. They are also all moving from there to here. I realize this is a growth state, and it's a growth state both because of in-migration and because our particular demographics have higher than average birth rates. So there's a bet to be made on the state of Nevada that our enrollment will be far more stable than most states in the nation. So when you take that, you also have to break down, when I talk about aggregate demographics, let's face it, for most of American history, the vast majority of American college-going students have been white, middle, and upper-middle-class students. That is the demographic that is in the steepest decline nationally. So what we need to do if we're being strategic about enrollment management is look to the populations that are growth opportunities. And there are several, and they benefit us. So the Latinx population, for example, is growing. They don't have the historic deep ties to higher education than other populations have had. So we have a strategic opportunity there around equity done well, done thoughtfully, 
to increase the percentage of those families that are seeking out higher education. The other population that is absolutely vital to the future of this nation are adults with some college but no degree. And that population requires special attention, special supports. They need different things than your average 18-year-old needs when they walk onto campus. But that, again, is an unmet need. I know this because there are new universities being founded right now. And they're responding to a market opportunity because traditional higher education isn't doing it. So when we talk about these students, these possible students who aren't being serviced by the system as it exists right now, um, I think about cost, right? So what is the value proposition? You know, we talk about populations that are historically not served by higher education. One of the reasons they're not served is because there's a cost barrier to higher education, especially at the university level. Nevada compared regionally, right, it's no California. It is a value proposition compared to other states. Um, but that's not to say that tens of thousands of dollars over the lifetime of a degree is still not a lot of money. So. Mm -hmm. How do you serve those populations when you still have to pay thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, in order to get that degree at the end of the day? We can't be callous about this, right? Because it's one thing to say, well, it's not that much money relative to other colleges or universities, but it's a lot of money to a low-income family. And I think the answer has to be that we have a profound obligation to reconsider our business model and to understand ways to bend the cost curve. Because we know that there are certain things about college-going populations that are gonna shift in terms of needs. If we're talking about trying to meet the needs of students with a different profile altogether, we have to get real about who those students are and what they need from us. And so addressing that question of what they need from us, I'll tell you, um, my colleague Dr. Brooks and I were talking to some students up north a week ago, and we asked, what are your barriers? And I heard three barriers, which I know because I do this every day, but certainly were not part of a conversation 100 years ago when I went to UC Santa Cruz. The barriers were, I need uh, public transit, right? I need a bus pass for free because otherwise I can't get to class. I need a childcare opportunity for my little ones so I know they're safe and well cared for while I'm in class. And actually I might need food from the food pantry because I'm food insecure. Those are three demands that current and future students are going to place on us that we have not addressed as a system nationally. And so I think we need to pivot in terms of what we are looking at in terms of services and needs of our students and we have to do much, much more in partnership. You bring up these services and delivering what students need as a college experience, you know, food insecurity, transportation, really critical issues for getting an education. When we talk about delivering those things, those things that aren't delivered right now, cost is a limiting factor here. And certainly, and she didn't escape this last legislative session without a little bit of pain, and $76 million in operational cuts spread over the next two years, or this year and next year, I should say. So with that being said, I mean, cost barriers being what they are, you know, the system's not getting any more money, it's getting less money. How do you address those problems in this environment? It's getting less money in terms of state appropriation, but I will say we're really grateful to have the kind of federal relief that has come our way to the whole industry in the last year and a half. It's been remarkable and has made a really big difference in our ability to meet the students' needs. And you, you all know, of course, that 
much of that federal relief went directly to students. So they were able to use that immediate relief in whatever way they needed, whether that was to backfill from a job loss, whether that was transportation, food, et cetera. So really important. We also know it's going to go away. Eventually, it's gone. And so we have to be prepared for that. And let me tell you this. I want my $76 million back. I do. $76 million sounds like a, a, a ton of money, right? And it's just an abstract number. But you have to understand what that means on our campuses. So the Board of Regents set an intention a few years ago before my arrival around the ratio between advisors and students because we know this is one of the most critical levers that we can pull for student retention and completion is to increase the number of advisors that they have access to, to provide guidance, to be a shoulder, to support and mentor. And they sent an intention around alleviating that, that barrier to student success. And part of what we are missing in that $76 million is more advisors. Part of what we are missing in that $76 million is healthcare services. Part of what we're missing are lower class sizes. Every single one of those dollars would have been dedicated to student success. So it's not just some abstract number. This is about real students who deserve the best that we can give them. And so we are relentlessly pursuing our backfill of that $76 million in, in addition to other strategic initiatives. And we'll be back. We'll live to fight another day. The, the budget for entry has not really recovered since cuts made during the Great Recession, even with sort of economic rebounding that happened in the decade after. And even under those conditions, we've heard legislators argue that and she still has a billion-dollar budget, that, that and she gets a lot of money, that all the institutions get a lot of money, and how well is that money spent? So what is your argument, then, to increase the slice of the pie uh, when NSHE's budget is already quite large? It is large because we're a massive organization. So if you do the comparative analysis, which I'm sure that you have, uh, we get a state appropriation that is right around the national average per pupil. So... Nothing to knock your socks off, but something we're incredibly grateful for uh, because it makes all that we do possible. The question is, do we want to provide even more than we are currently doing? And if so, it requires investment. So the case, of course, is the one I keep making here tonight, which is that you are not going to diversify your economy you are not going to have the transformative opportunity with people's lives without further prioritization. And for sure, that takes champions, that takes consistency too. And those are our hard won. We had the same challenges in Oregon. This is not unique to Nevada, um, but the solutions will be unique to Nevada. So I would argue that part of the reason we're entering into strategic planning is that we have to develop more friends and we have to be much more creative in public-private partnerships. And this is where I think there is a lot of upside potential in the state of Nevada, a lot of untapped potential uh, for those kinds of creative agreements with private entities that can supply part of what we need um, and go a long way to alleviating some of the dependency on state appropriation. 
there are major corporate interests who are saying, you know, we're going to develop our own educational programming internal, right? Walmart, Starbucks, you name it. Really smart play is to figure out how to work with those corporate partners so that the experts from our institutions can deliver the content, the curriculum, the instruction. And I think we have a lot of opportunity. Look, look at Look at the corporate opportunities that we have in Nevada to do just that. I spent a day up at Tesla a few months back talking with Chris Riley about expanding our agreement with them. Um, huge upside potential. We have an agreement down here in southern Nevada with MGM that's just really was getting started right before COVID hit and had a setback because of that. But a lot of intention on both sides to, to really elevate that opportunity. So who's going to be our Starbucks? Who's going to be our Walmart? And I think we have real corporate partners here who care a lot about this place that we call home and who are willing to come to the table with us. You may have noticed that in addition to a global pandemic, the world has actually also gone bonkers. People, people think that if you make them wear a mask, that it is the worst thing that has happened uh, since World War II, right? People think that if you have vaccine mandates, uh, that, that, that you are being coercive and, and other terrible things. You have to deal with this. You have to deal with it, uh, you know, especially with young, impressionable kids who are going to hear some of this stuff. What is the impact that you're seeing? Do you think that you're going to lose employees significantly? Do you think you're going to lose students significantly because of your nonsensical view of following the science? <laughs> well, let's, talk, let's just talk about the numbers for a second. So as we sit here today on November 15th, 88% and change of our employees are fully vaccinated. And so there's a ways to go, obviously. And, and you all know, based on recent events, that on December 1st, any employees of Enchi's who have not demonstrated that they are, have completed the full course of the vaccinations will effectively get a notice of termination that is effective December 31st. And then after that, there is a grace period for reappointment if the person goes home and says, gosh, I, I would rather stay employed at NSHE and, and brings proof of vaccines. So we're, we're, we're a ways out yet from fully knowing the impact on the employee side. But every week I get those numbers in my inbox on Monday morning. And we've got about 1% of employees who have been granted an exemption, um, either for religious or medical purposes, um, that has gone through a review committee. And, you know, I would be very sad if any and she, employee, chose to depart our institutions over this issue. We're always sad to see employees go for whatever reason, um, but I have still a lot of faith that we're going to get pretty darn close to complete vaccination by the time that we need to on the employee side. On the student side, there's some real complexity in the data that makes it harder for us to report consistently. And the reason is that you never know which students are planning to come back next semester anyway. And you get fresh students every semester, particularly at the community colleges. 
Uh, and I was talking to one, one president the other day who said to me when I asked him, how is it looking from where you sit? Because students now can register for spring semester. And his response was, we have more students today registered for spring 2022 than we did on this exact date one year ago. And so in a way, that is the best predictor of all. That's the best measure of all, is to see our students coming in through registration processes. So there's a long tail here, which creates a lot of uncertainty. And we're doing everything within our control to provide these opportunities for students and faculty and staff. And I am here with assistant editor Riley Snyder. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for getting my title right. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, changing from reporter to assistant editor. Although I'll always refer to you as Michelle's husband. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's not (laughs) what I have either. We are chatting about uh, state employees that are now have to get vaccinated. Otherwise, they face a cost, a penalty uh, cost through PEB, which is the, the state healthcare provider. Am I right? Yeah. So uh, PEB, which stands for the Public Employees Benefits Program, it's sort of the health insurance system that state of Nevada employees and higher education employees are enrolled in. They're considering a policy at their upcoming meeting on Thursday, December 2nd to uh, implement COVID-19 surcharge for unvaccinated state workers. So essentially what this means is that the current pool of state workers who have decided to remain unvaccinated against COVID would have to pay a a surcharge every month um, for themselves and any dependents who are on the health insurance plan just because of the cost associated with dealing with COVID-19. Deals with both testing, because these tests can be expensive, up to $130 per test, depending on kind of like location and type of test, and the cost of dealing with COVID hospitalizations and other treatment costs related to that. So the example the executive director, Laura Rich, gave was kind of like a tobacco surcharge, where if you smoke, you pay a little extra on your health insurance premiums every month because you're engaged in a behavior that's known to be unhealthy. So they're kind of viewing remaining unvaccinated against COVID as a similar kind of paradigm. Uh, and and with, is there like an end date to this or is this just be indefinite? It would be indefinite, I believe. I, they might have to re-up it and, you know, hopefully COVID goes away at some point where they <laughs> don't have to worry about this, but it would go into effect uh, starting in June. So state employees would have like some time to get vaccinated. It would be about $60, $55 per uh, employee per month and then about $175 per dependent over the age of 18. So that can add up if you're a state employee who has a family of like four or five and everyone's covered on your health insurance plan. So the idea is to kind of have it act as a stick to get more state employees vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. And how many are unvaccinated right now? Is there a number that they've they've found? Yeah, so PEP estimates that about 5,000 state employees remain unvaccinated and about 1,250 higher education employees remain unvaccinated. It's kind of hard to determine like who in their coverage plan falls in that category because they have so many dependents, but that's the estimate like rough number that they have in terms of people who work for the state who have supplied vaccine paperwork to their health insurance provider. And another important point is that like they will have exemptions for like legitimate medical or religious um, purposes. So 
The idea is not to have just 100% vaccination rate among all state employees, but to provide more of a stick against those who have been kind of late in getting the vaccine. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I believe we heard about it in the Melody Rose discussion, but if you are an NCHI employee and they're not vaccinated and they don't have a legitimate reason, then they'll be terminated. So that number will probably go down. Yeah, that's the the entry policy. And again, the state is taking kind of a different approach. So right now, if you're unvaccinated, you have to get tested weekly if you work for the state, not necessarily for entry. But I think there is some concern um, among the state, especially like for Department of Corrections employees, who I think the most recent number was like 65% vaccinated and they've had early access to the vaccines kind of since earlier this year. They don't want to lose people who don't want to get vaccinated. So this is just kind of an additional, you know, stick, but not the ultimate stick in terms of uh, letting them go if they don't get the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen like across the United States, law enforcement specifically in certain states, like refusing to get vaccinated and mass walkouts and stuff like that. How much would this cost Peb to deal with unvaccinated employees and how much would this bring in for them for the the fee that they'd have to pay? Yeah. So Peb is in a weird spot where they kind of have a range of costs just because right now, if you're unvaccinated, you get tested every week, but the state covers that through like plan that's funded through federal dollars, but that's going away at the end of the year and they'll be required to cover the cost of testing moving forward. They're in contract negotiations or communications about getting a vendor to provide testing weekly at state sites, but that cost could range anywhere from 12.3 to $24.7 million based on the average cost of a test, which they'll try to negotiate down. And I said the $130 per test figure earlier, but it will probably be anywhere from like 20 to 60 to up to 130 per test. So PEB is on the hook for that. They are proposing this vaccine surcharge just because if not, like all people in the PEB system have to pay for that. So that means either your benefit levels go down or your rates go up for everyone. And their thought process in proposing this policy is that the people who remain unvaccinated should have to foot more of the cost as it relates to overall cost to the, the system for the unvaccinated. Is, is this unique among states to have something like this? Yeah. So I'm not going to pretend like I did a full 50 state study of policies on this, but <laughs> Peb said they reached out to about 11 other Western states and none of them have done something similar to this. Delta Airlines adopted something similar and they credited it with pushing their vaccination rate up from about 75% to 90% when they put a a $200 surcharge for any employee who remains unvaccinated. So it's kind of like, it's an alternative way to get at trying to increase vaccination rates without just firing people who don't get vaccinated. It's saying you can continue to do this, but it's going to cost you because it costs us. So I think that's Peb's thought process. And I think there's a lot of states who are interested to see how this is going to work out. And Nevada might be kind of a trailblazer in this regard in terms of state health insurance systems, trying to, to see how this works and if it will work for them. Has there been much backlash or pushback to this? It's just the usual kind of like crazy internet commenter backlash. I mean, we'll see at the meeting on Thursday how much backlash there might be or might not be. So yeah, it's it's difficult to say. And And is there anything else that they're expecting to hear at the meeting when they're talking about this? Yeah. So the vaccine surcharge is just one part of the group of policies that the PEB board will discuss and possibly vote to approve. The other kind of policy they're going to adopt is this idea of restoring cost sharing for COVID-19 treatments. Basically, up until this point throughout the pandemic, insurers have waived all like out-of-pocket costs. So if you, Joey, are hospitalized for COVID-19, your insurance company would generally cover out-of-pocket costs. This was up until vaccines became widely available. And so now you would have to pay out of pocket, like similar to any other health insurance procedure. PEP has continued to cover all costs for COVID-19 treatment 
So they're recommending restoring cost sharing. So basically just out-of-pocket payments for anyone who is hospitalized or gets any kind of medical treatment through COVID-19. It has been pretty pricey for the health insurance system. They say they've waived about $3.2 million of costs in just out-of-pocket expenses for COVID-19 treatment and hospitalization since April 2021, which is when vaccines became widely available to the public. All right, Riley. Well, thank you for giving us an update on this, this meeting that's going to happen this week. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Melody Rose, John Ralston, Jacob Solis, and Riley Snyder for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, articles that debate the merits of lard over butter, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we had additional music from Storyblocks and original music from me. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.